welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Welcome to episode 16 of Want to Hear Something Interesting? I'm one of your hosts, Chad Knight, and along with me as always is my other host. That would be me, Scott Ahern. Hello, everybody. That's the guy. You know, the guy whose name we say incorrectly in the... The pre-show little uh, warm-up thing there. And most of my friends say incorrectly, so don't sweat it. It happens. Well, but, you know, look at your name. The way it's spelled, Ahern. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ahern. Because in, in English, we're used to a lot so- more soft A's than hard A's. At least that's the way I feel about it. So that's yeah, why I always... That doesn't make any sense, because by saying it Ahern, you're making it a hard A. I know, but that's because names are messed up. Well, English is messed up. Well, I mean, are you going to eat your dessert in the desert? No, it'll melt. Exactly. Unless it's (laughs) carrot cake. True, carrot cake. But then the cream cheese frosting would melt because you can't have carrot cake. Well, you'd eat that first, wouldn't you? I mean, you just scrape that off and eat that stuff. Well, I wouldn't. I don't like cream cheese frosting or carrot cake, but I really don't think that's what we're here to talk about. No, no, not at all. And in fact, we're going to talk about, well, something that both of us have in common and our guests have in common. We're going to talk about being parents. Okay, this the requirement for this isn't being a responsible parent, is it? Not necessarily. Okay, good. We have you here. No, yes, I'm exactly. <laughs> and myself, as a matter of fact. And and we'll find out about our guests. Now, with us is a friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. <laughs> I think about, I don't even know. The it's... numbers have been changed to protect the elderly. <laughs> Something like that. So, why don't you say hi, Mike? Say hi to everybody. Give us a little background on yourself, and we'll go from there. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Michael. Uh, background on myself. Uh, in, as far as parenting or just in general? Just in general. All we'll right. get to parenting I was, later. Uh, I was born one month after Apollo 11 landed on the moon, uh, which makes me slightly less than 50 years old. Um, grew up my life uh, here in my hometown, if we care where that is. Um, done a number of things from being self-employed to working uh, backstage in theater to uh, being the director of guest services for our local performing arts center. Uh, raised four beautiful children. Uh, I'm currently married to uh, a wonderful wife that I will remain married to for the rest of my life. Um, so Whether or so not far, it's natural so, death or she kills you. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, so <laughs> I, that's why I said the rest of my natural life. So. All right. So we'll get back to you in a second here, Mike. So what we're going to do is, well, what I'm going to start out doing anyway is I'm going to talk about the 12 most famous parenting books in the United States. Now, when we were talking beforehand, I said the 12 most purchased manuals in parenting, but it's not throughout the world, but it's the, you know, the most famous parenting books in the United States, most of which I believe are still being used. I know my wife and I used um, at least one of them, maybe two of them. It's been a long time since my kids were little enough to be reading parenting books, Um, but let's, let's go ahead and get through these. So... The first one, and the one that the minute you get pregnant is always brought up within a short amount of time, and that's Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care. Now, 
this was written by Benjamin Spock, MD, so he was a doctor. He was not on the Starship Enterprise, but... Important caveat. Yes. Because the first time I heard of this book, me being a huge Star Trek fan, I thought, wait a minute, Vulcans kind of send their kids off to little creches to be communally raised. <laughs> so you're like, wait, Leonard Nimoy wrote a childing book? Mm-hmm. A child rearing book? So anyway, this was released on July 14th, 1946. So just kind of wrap your head around that. That's been well over 50 years. So no list. Well over 50 years, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because The guester needs to remain silent at this point. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. You're just saying that because you're like, I'm almost 50. I get you. So people out there don't think you were born in 47. Gotcha. So no list of parenting books can be complete without Dr. Spock's baby and child care. For nearly two generations, parents worldwide have gone to Dr. Spock for his expert, insightful pediatric advice. All information that you need in this book, from breastfeeding techniques to dealing with emotionally troubled children. This book has chapters on common medical care, immunizations, learning disorders, and gay and lesbian parenting. Okay, 1946, this guy was talking about same-sex couples raising children. Yes. That, to me, seems a little bit... Ahead of his time? Yes, absolutely. So, you can buy this book still today on Amazon.com for about 20 bucks. It's in its eighth edition. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those books. It's the classic child-rearing book. Yes. Now, think of, if you will, the time period in which this book was published. Nine, July 1946. We are... A about nine months removed from the victory over Japan. Yep. End of World War II. All of these servicemen coming home from the Pacific Theater, having been away from their wives that either they married just before they shipped out or they married as soon as they got home. Are we kind of starting to see that maybe this was released around the beginning of the baby boom? Quite possibly. <laughs> All right, so let's move on. Now, there's a big gap, and and there were books written in this gap, but they're not books that are really used anymore today. <laughs> Some of the names of the books that I saw were quite interesting, you know. But anyway, let's move on. So the series of What to Expect started in 1984, and they had What to Expect When You're Expecting, What to Expect When uh, Toddlers and Preschoolers and... All these different ones. Now, these were written by Heidi Murkoff and Sharon Mazell. The What to Expect childcare books are a shoe-in for second place on anyone's list. This is actually a series of books that starts the reader out during pregnancy with helpful advice, hints, and helpful directions. There's a breastfeeding guide, general baby care, immunizations, general questions, answered about allergies, medical care, how to get the baby to sleep, and, and whatever. And in some of the chapters... Some very explicit descriptions and illustrations that at one point made my wife put the book down for a week because she couldn't keep reading. <laughs> All right. So other books in the series take the parent through a baby's early years into its teens with helpful advice throughout the book, specifically targeted at a certain stage of development in the child's growth. So we used this book. We used What to Expect When You're Expecting. We both read that one, and then Nikki had the what to expect, you know, the first year thing, and I think she got about halfway through it, and some of the stuff in there was really helpful, worked really well, 
the one about getting your kids to sleep, just throw that. Just take that chapter, tear it out, throw it away because every kid is different. There is no simple way to get a kid to sleep. But anyway, aside from that, Benadryl. I, well, my grandmother would have set a little beer in the bottle. Or brandy. <laughs> or brandy, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, and that that's one of those things about uh, that you might be talking about. But anyway, so let's move on. Siblings without rivalry. Now, this is a book I wish I knew about. Because my girls now, that are 16 and 18, are finally starting to get along. And they never really did when they were younger. They they would make polite in public. And they would make polite when, you know, we got to our wits end. But they never really got along. But now that I have one in college and, and another one in high school, when she comes home, it's actually kind of scary. Because they kind of cuddle up and they talk. And it's kind of wondering if they're planning our demise or not. But this was written by Elaine uh, Moslish. Anyone knows that raising one child can be a handful, but consider raising several in the same household. Sibling rivalry is a serious problem that can affect the normal development of your children. Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish have addressed the problem in, in Siblings Without Rivalry, a common sense, straightforward manner. Instead of telling a child how stupid it is to feel challenged by a brother or sister, each issue should be addressed in a positive, life-affirming manner. It teaches about making sure that their children have alone time, never get sucked into unwinnable games, and never roll categorizing your, your, your kids. So, you know, it sounds helpful. Never used this book. Anybody else? Nope. Okay. Let's move on then. Single Mothers by Choice, 1994, by Jane Matz. One new issue in parenting in our new world is raising children in a single parent home. Being a mother is a tough job, and becoming a single mother is so is much more so. Author Jane Matz founded her national group Single Mothers by Choice and used it as her foundation for her book. This parenting book deals with the psychological issues of becoming a single mother, understanding that for the mother to be able to effectively raise and teach her children, she must first understand herself. None of us are mothers. Nope. So, um, and, and I don't think any of us have... I don't think any of us have been involved with women who were single mothers. Um, well, my folks were divorced very early. Okay. So I was raised by a single mother, but she had a, a very strong support system of her mother mm-hmm. and her aunt. Okay. So um, for me, it, it was almost more of a community of moms. Okay. So you were the village idiot raised by a village. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So, my parents were together my entire childhood, but it, there are some aspects of my childhood where I could almost say I was raised by a single mother, because my dad, though there in the house and providing, wasn't really there, you know what I mean? But so, a lot of that is generational as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So, on to the next book, One, Two, Three Magic Parenting Solutions, released in 1994, written by Thomas W. Phelan. One of the best-selling parenting books and programs on the market today that consistently deliver great results is 123 Magic Parenting Solutions. You can get it either at Amazon.com or directly through their website. This series is all about discipline that works, especially for children with discipline problems. This technique is called counting discipline and involves going, giving a numbered sequence of warnings to the child before timeout is called. I think we all kind of do that, at least we did, with our girls. They'd get a couple warnings, and then it was timeout time. Um, Scott, Mike? Yeah, that was pretty much standard 
Fair. Depending on what it was, it was usually you got to three, which sounds like what they do. One, two, one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't count that high, so I never counted. <laughs> yeah. I've, Just until they got to the breaking point, huh? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I've not used it myself, mm-hmm. but my brother-in-law and his ex-wife did. So I saw it kind of in action. It, it had about a 50-50 success rate. Okay. So... All in all, a highly recommended and well-received series, Dr. Phelan teaches that children will respect boundaries once they know where those boundaries are. If you're having discipline problems with your children, Dr. Phelan may have the answers that you need. Now, the next one, The Expectant Father, which was released in 1995. Now, I read a book um, about being an expectant father. I don't know if it was this one or not, and I looked through my books and I couldn't find it. But then again, I have a lot of books. I don't know what... They are. (laughs) I have books everywhere in my house. So, the old saying is that it takes two to tango is especially apt in parenting. There are so many guides and books on parenting on how to be a good mother or parenting from a mother's perspective that Mr. Dad, author Armin Brat, decided the time was right to give dads a hand. The expectant father is especially directed at the unique problems faced by expectant and new fathers. With over a million copies in print, this is the first book to take a real look at the father's point of view. There are chapters that deal with the subject all the way from when you found out that you were going to be a father to how to start a college fund. So, I don't know about you. Did you read any Expecting Father books, guys? I did not. However, the hospital where we planned to deliver my first daughter had this program that was actually a fairly new program that was funded by a grant Mm -hmm. called Fathers in Training. Okay. And specifically, it was geared towards new fathers to say, okay, this is what you can expect. And it was actually pretty helpful. Okay. Um, I went before my daughter was born, and then when she was about four months old, they called me up and said, we're having another one. Would you like to come back as a new father and talk to the expectant fathers? And it, it worked out pretty well because um, with my older daughter, we were using cloth diapers. Okay. And they'd never had anyone who was using cloth diapers before. So I got to talk to them about cloth diapers, show them how to change it, the enzyme spray that we used to clean the poop off so it didn't right. completely crust up and stain and be immensely stinky. So it worked out pretty well. Okay, cool. So Discipline That Works, Five Simple Steps, released in 2003 by Joyce E. Divinal, or Divinal. So Discipline That Works, Five Simple Steps, is just five simple steps that offer a highly effective approach to helping your children learn the things that they need to know to be successful and happy in life. Children are taught communication skills, thinking skills, and self-control skills, while the parents are taught discipline strategies and new ways to handle difficult situations with their kids. This is a great tool because it gives advice to both the parents and the children, working as a great life guide for both sides of the pro, pro of the problem. So, this is more of a, I mean, it's a book, but it's more of a system, and it's something that you work with the kids on, which can bear fruit. I I, I know this from experience, but it is a lot of work. And it's a lot of hard work. So let's move on to Baby 411. Now, this was released also in 2003. If you're having a baby, congratulations. Coming home from the hospital with your new baby is wonderful until reality sets in. And that's when you make a stop at Walmart because you know you forgot something that you're on your way home with the kid. And you got her all dressed up in her brand new going home outfit. 
and you get there and find out that you have the outfit on wrong, backwards, as a matter of fact. So when my oldest was born, we bought this cute little sailor suit to bring her home in. And we're putting the sailor suit on her, and the nurses are watching us, and they're not saying anything. You know, we put the buttons in the back and the flap that looks like a bib in the front. No, the bib goes in the back, which made no sense to me because if the kid's drooling, you want to go on the bib, don't you? You would think, but with most things for babies, they don't make a whole lot of logical sense because <laughs> babies don't make logical That's sense. That's true. So this baby doesn't come with instructions. Now you realize that you're going to need help. Baby 411 by Ari Brown and Denise Fields is just the book you need. Complete with instructions on how to select a pediatrician, new information on hot topics like cord blood banking, autism, the truth about old wives' tales and internet rumors, a detailed nutrition guide including breast, breastfeeding advice, getting the baby to sleep, and many other features. Why do these books tell you you can get your baby to sleep? Okay, Scott, you've got two girls. Yes, did, I, did either of them, do they go to sleep the same way? Actually, one thing worked very well and still works for the younger one because she's only 14 months, and that's driving around in the car. Okay, okay. Apart from that, <laughs> no way. What about you, Mike? You you dealt with four kids. Yeah, uh, two of which I uh, didn't come, they didn't come into my life until they were older. Right. You know? uh, but as far as difference in sleeping patterns, uh, my one male, my one female, uh, they they were completely different in how they fell asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the boy refused to ever go to sleep, um, and the girl would just crap up. So. Yeah. Now, see, with my daughters, my oldest one, and this trick still worked when she was in high school. If she really had a night where she couldn't sleep, I was told her I would give her the magic kiss. And it was just a series of, and it was a pattern that I did on her face. And then I, as she got older, I'd tell her, remember, this only works if you believe it works. And I'll bet you 90% of the time I would do that. She would lay down within a half hour. She was out. Uh, when she was really little, all I had to do was walk in and put my hands over her eyes and she would zonk out in less than five minutes. It was, and it was just, it was funny the way we figured that out because when Nikki was pregnant, Emma was a mover. I mean, all the time. And it would get to the point where Nikki would hurt, you know, physically hurt from all the movement. And I'd put my hand, I never felt Emma move inside Nikki. I saw her move, but I would put my hand on Nikki's belly and she would just chill out. So Nikki was having a hard time getting her to sleep one night and she goes, why don't you go in there? And I'm like, what do you want me to do? She's like, I don't know. Put your hand on her face like you used to when she was inside. And I'm like, all right. So I walk in there and I put my hand on her. And she quit squirming right away. And within five minutes, she was just... And I was like, this works? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like maybe it's just a one-off thing. You know, it'll happen once. But no, it all the way through. And then it, it evolved into the kiss because you don't want to sit there for 10 minutes with your hand on their face, you know feel like you're suffocating them out or something <laughs> but anyway let's move on to the next one so the new basics a to z baby and child care for the modern parent which was released on january 6 2004 is by dr michael cohen and is the perfect learning tool for parents who worry too much the book covers all of the basic concerns of new especially first-time parents with a positive outlook throughout dr cohen covers everything from APGAR scores to warts, 
adoption, flu, anesthesia, and many more topics. This book isn't recommended for parents of children with special needs because they have different issues. Dr. Cohen writes with a style that makes you feel like you're getting a house call from your favorite family doctor. I don't think I've ever heard of a house call from a doctor anymore. <laughs> no, they're they're not as popular as they used to be, but I mean, they are they're coming back in the style. Yeah, I know there's there's yeah, this this new age of things. I've been hearing about it where especially in smaller communities, doctors will make house calls just to make it easier, especially on the, you know, the old and the invalid and that kind of stuff. So I can't say it's a bad thing, but it's a thing. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, it, 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 it's it's the evolution of the of the society from the the, the homebound uh, farming community where the doctor had to go from house to house or the people would never come to him. Or right. Her, uh, to the point where it was easier for the doctor to stay put and people to go to, to them uh, to the point now it's more of a specialty practice, you know. Right, so. and they probably... I'm only guessing here, but I'm guessing they charge a premium for that service. I would imagine so, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's kind of the thing where they started going away from the house calls as the population boomed. And there's a lot of things that seem, at least to me in, in, in watching people and watching society, that we're reverting on some things. You know, the newer generation, the millennials or whatever you want to call them, and, and the generation after that have gone to, they're less worried about having a car. They'd rather ride around on a bike or take public transit or something like that. Where our generation is like, you'll get my car when, you know, you pry it out of my cold, dead hands. But you know what I mean? It's just, it's like, we need our cars to us. That's independence. Yes. Where now they're like, I'll take a bus. I'll, you know, I'll Uber it. I'll ride my bike. I'll whatever. So I think things are starting to revert back. And I think it's because of the population that we have now. Well, I think I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the way society has functioned. It, there was a point in time where the people that were around you, the closest to you, were the ones you socialized with. That was because there wasn't a, a large amount of mass transit or easy transit. Uh, and then over time, as we as everybody owning an automobile became more popular, it was easier for people to go somewhere. Uh, and that's how they socialized. Uh, now, we all socialize over the Internet. Correct. So that the generation, I believe it's called Generation I. Uh, I think it is yeah, right now, yeah. Yeah, I believe they're evolving into that, that we don't need to go somewhere to socialize. We'll stay at home or, you know, we don't have to go as far. Right. Uh, so as, a, as our population gets bigger... The, the further the, the amount they travel is getting smaller. So. Right. It's, it's almost like it's coming back into that where we started, you know, that, that, that tight-knit social group. Now, unfortunately, that tight-knit social group isn't you and I sitting down across the table talking to each other. It's you on the other side of the world, and we're talking through, you know, FaceTime or text or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, I as a personal experience have spent more time speaking to my daughter who lives in Florida uh, through gaming on PS4 than we've spent together in the last two years. <laughs> Just the way it happens. Huh? Just the way it happens. All right. So the next book I've got here is called Teen Grief Relief. It was released in 2007. It was written by Gloria and Heidi Horsley. It's a great self-help book for both parents and teenagers. This book was written by the highly credentialed mother-daughter grief experts and provides information on understanding the teenager's emotions, when and how to talk about death with your children, 
the difference between normal grief and complicated grief, and includes many references and a good resource guide. Shared in the book with the readers are teen stories, feelings, and parenting techniques that help grieving teens not only survive grief by thrive after a painful loss of a family member or friend. So, I think that's a great thing. I know I was, I knew about death early on because my grandparents started dying when I was quite young. I lost my grandmama at four. And then grandpa, I think I was like 10. You know, and, and of course, when I was growing up, we weren't shielded from that kind of thing because it was a part of life. And then when my girls were young, we had a family friend die. And we didn't want to, and I, and I use the royal we in this one, we didn't want to have the girls, you know, really know about it that at that point yet they were still i mean they were still young four and two something like that but then once grandparents started dying then we introduced that whole concept of of death and i don't know scott how about you has has penny had to deal with anything like that as of yet um yes yeah, she was six months old when my dad passed away and then uh, my mom passed away just last april so for when my dad passed, she was six months. Right. She didn't know any differently. Um, but in the case of my mom, it actually hit us harder, I think, because my mother and I had been estranged for a number of years. Um, we just finally gotten back together. She'd met Penny for the first time okay. um, the summer before she died. And she'd been suffering from cancer but didn't want to drop that on me when we were starting to reconcile. So all of a sudden I get a call from one of her friends who was her hospice coordinator to say, hi, you've never met me, but your mom's dead. Wow. And I got the call on a Wednesday night, um, right after dinner. And I'm just like, excuse me. So then I was upset and Penny and my wife Tina were wondering why I'm upset and I was trying to tell them and then of course Penny is a very sensitive little girl and she starts bawling. Um, so it, we really didn't have the opportunity to plan how we wanted to approach it. Mm -hmm. It just kind of hit us. Yeah. yeah. All right. What about, what about you? Well, uh, obviously we've all we've all had to deal with death. Um, for my children, there was never an early death moment. My dad passed away uh, in 2000. Um, my son would have been eight at that time, uh, and they had a pretty close relationship. As you know, Spencer was involved with sports mm -hmm. when he was younger, uh, and my dad was big into that. Uh, but you know, Spencer took that pretty well. You know, he 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 understood that my dad was uh, was ill later in his life, uh, had a lot of medical issues, and we were very upfront with Spencer about that. Uh, Bailey, on the other hand, was um, was only four, um, so she didn't uh, really quite understand what was going on. She mm -hmm. just sort of sort of understood that Grandpa really wasn't in the picture anymore. Um, but later in life, uh, with Bailey, when she lost an uncle, she took that very hard. Um, she was, um, right around 15, 16, I believe. Um, 
and this would have been an uncle from my ex-wife's side, so I wasn't in the picture um, in a home setting at that time. Right. So, but she took it really hard, and then uh, my daughter Michaela, from my current wife, um, she had a friend who was involved in a car accident in high school, and she took it extremely hard. And that sort of, since then, has developed the way she reacts to death. Um, she she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't grasp it well, you know, and she mm-hmm. really struggles and it affects her over a, a long period of time. So there's a lot of uh, grief counseling that has to happen, you know, as a parent, uh, that sort of thing. And it, it's important just to let them know that, you know, you're there for them. It's part of life. And, 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 but they all react differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move on to Travels with Baby, which was released in September of 2007. If you're planning to do some holiday traveling with your new baby... Don't. Sh- don't, yes. <laughs> <laughs> then Shelley Rivoli's book, Travel with Baby, should be in your luggage. The book teaches parents how to travel safely and legally with infants and toddlers. The book contains hints and parenting tips on flying, driving, trains, ships, and even backpacking. Okay, I- I'm sorry, but what parent is going to grab their infant and go backpacking? Actually, I know a few friends who do that. That just doesn't seem safe to me. But anyway, it contains information on flying with special needs children, traveling with twins, and even traveling for an international adoption. Okay, what's the big deal about traveling with twins? I don't know. It's what it says in the book, though. (laughs) So now you can enjoy urban adventure, world cruise, and camping trips with your children along. Okay, fair enough. I mean, a book on how to deal with kids, if there's there's good information in there, great. We never really had an issue with that. I mean, the girls didn't like flying when they were little. Um, the first time we took Emma on a plane, she was nine months old, and she hated every second of it. I see. Now, Penny loves flying. We took her on. Well, Emma likes flying now, mm-hmm. but as, as a nine-month-old, all she could tell is, you know, her ears plugged up. and. Okay. Now, see, as I mentioned, Penny was six months old when my dad passed away. He lived in Florida, so we had to fly to the funeral. We planned ahead. We um, timed it so that we were giving her a bottle at takeoff, and we were giving her a bottle at landing. Oh, okay. So that took care of the whole ear-popping Issue. Well, we gave her a, a nook, but it didn't seem to... Yeah, it, it. I don't think it does enough of the sucking motion to equalize the pressure. And with Penny, she hated pacifiers, so that wasn't really an option for us. Mm-hmm. Um, the following summer, when we were driving, or when we were going to Florida, we thought, well, Penny does really well in the car. She falls asleep really easily. And at this point, she's getting a pretty solid 12 to 14 hours of sleep overnight if our schedule allows for that. Right. So we thought, no problem. We'll leave after dinner time. We'll give her her bottle. She'll fall asleep in the car. She'll sleep for most of the evening. We'll stop for breakfast, get some rest. Maybe um, we thought that we'd stop at a motel near a park or something, and I could get some sleep while my wife took Penny to the park or whatever. Oh, no. Being in the car at night completely reversed anything. Penny did not sleep a wink that entire night. She pretty much <laughs> screamed for yeah. 2,400 miles. Oh. So we got down to Florida, and the first thing we did was we made arrangements for Tina and Penny to fly home and me to drive the car back. <laughs> what about you? Any any great travel stories? Uh, 
Well, uh... And by great, I mean either funny or... Yeah, right? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've flown with my son, Spencer, when he was about five, and he did very well. He loved it. He thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. Uh, traveled cross-country with Spencer and Bailey uh, to Florida, uh, and that was a different experience because we did it where we traveled. We started early in the morning, traveled till about 2, 3 in the afternoon, found a hotel, um, it, it just was a lot of uh, a lot of hard to adapt them to something they're not used to, you know. And it just yeah, it was great. We're swimming in the pool, but then why do we have to get back in the car and travel right. again, you know? Right. So Bailey did fine, you know, as a baby. Uh, Spencer, on the other hand, was you know bouncing off the off the van walls. So it sort of created that you know situation where everybody was sort of in a tin can being driven nuts, uh, and the baby was sleeping. Um, well, at least the baby was sleeping. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that going for you. All right. And so the, the last book we're going to talk about is Building Character Skills in an Out-of-Control Child. 2008 uh, is by Dr. C.R. Partridge. is a self-help parenting that helps parents understand the role of character development in a child's personal growth. Dr. Partridge's extensive experience tells the immature child character development is caused from giving a child too much comfort, allowing them too much control and power. This book has chapters on how inaccurate diagnosis can harm a child's development, how skills differ from morals, and how to recognize immature behavior and the four cornerstones of character development. So if you have a child who is exhibiting behavior problems, this book is a great guide. I think my mother would have loved this book. Because I might have been that problem child. <laughs> Maybe just a smidge. All right, so those are the 12 books, like I said. Uh, we're going to move on. Scott wants to talk a little bit about changes in medical advice over the years. So why don't you uh, take it away? Let's get through this, and then we're going to kind of do a roundtable of just, you know, three dads talking about being dads. Okay. Well, I mean, everybody who has a kid or has thought about having a kid and everything, in addition to the self-help books you were talking about, has probably looked into things like immunizations and uh, how old do they have to be before I can give them Tylenol or ibuprofen? Um, when is it appropriate to give them certain foods? Things like that. And what I found really interesting when I was looking through some sources like Wikipedia, like WebMD, um, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that things have changed. And then when I was thinking back on it, like I have an eight-year-old and a one-year-old, and there have even been some profound changes just in the time span between those two. Because, I mean, as you mentioned, Chad, your um, youngest is a junior in high school. Right. And your kids run a whole range of ages, Mike, right? Yeah, they're all uh, college age to working in the workforce at this point, yeah. Okay. So we've seen some significant changes. And then I think back to my childhood and some of the things that were commonplace back then, and, and I wonder how any of us survived. But <laughs> then again, I, I remember... Um, because we didn't, we didn't know it would kill us, so it didn't. Exactly. Right. And I remember a, a bit from one of George Carlin's routines when he was ragging on the helicopter parents who were like, Oh, my child sniffled. Bring him to the emergency room. They must have blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And he said, my immune system can take on anything because I grew up swimming in the East River. And we didn't need vaccinations because we had toxic waste. 
<laughs> There's some truth to that, though. I know. It, it builds the immune system. Right. The downside to that is, and um, as most of our listeners know, I'm a high school teacher. So I work in a germ factory, and I see a lot of these trends. And over the, the course of my, at this point, 13 years in public education, uh, I've seen flu sweep through a school. I've seen pink eye go rampant. Uh, one of the things that concerned me the most, though, was this one time I saw whooping cough take out an entire football team. Oof. Because, and it it's one of those things that comes up in cycles, it seems, in childhood medical advice, is vaccinations. And that predominantly doctors will tell you vaccines are safe, you should vaccinate, and most school districts will say if you don't have vaccinations, you can't bring the kid to school. And it's one of those ongoing fights between the legal requirement for free and uh, public education versus community health ordinances and things like that. And for example, myself, given my age, I was right around that transition time between the immunization for uh, measles rubella and mumps measles rubella. And I only got the measles rubella vaccine and I got the mumps. And I was out of school for about three months. Let me stop you there. I had the vaccination, the measles, mumps, and rubella, and I still got the mumps. Now, granted, it wasn't, the doctors all said it wasn't as bad of a case had I not gotten the vaccine. The vaccine. But I still, I think I missed three weeks of school. And it's not, it's not fun. No. (laughs) In fact, um, I always say uh, mumps gave me my glasses. Because before I got the mumps, I had 20-20 vision. Uh, After the first couple of weeks with it, I was home. I was watching TV during the day, and I told my grandmother, something's wrong with the TV. The screen's all fuzzy. Ah. And she said, no, the TV's fine. I'm like, well, then why can't I see it? And um, she had me try a pair of her glasses. I'm like, oh, that's better. So when I was better, they took me to the eye doctor, and I got glasses. Yeah, I suppose uh, a, a, a disease like that could cause issues like that. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that I found, we kind of alluded to it a little bit with the self-help books and child-rearing books, is what to do if the baby won't sleep. And one of the old remedies that actually was still medically discussed, even in the 70s, was alcohol. Mm-hmm. But that's a, I mean, that even goes back to folk remedies, back to the settling of the United States, because that was the basis of patent medicine. Because it works. It did. And it it was, I mean, it was a sedative. It was an analgesic. It, it was recommended for teething. You rubbed a little bit on the gums. A little brandy on the gums, yeah. Yep. So that, that I, I thought was interesting, because nowadays we have everybody talking about the the dangers of alcohol in the developing brain and fetal alcohol syndrome if you have a expectant mother who's drinking. But 40 years ago, 50 years ago, doctors were saying, yeah, give them a little wine. Give them well, a little you, whiskey. You know, and it's funny because there there is a healing property to alcohol. And I watched this my entire life. When my dad would get sick, which wasn't very often, but when he would get sick, 
At night, he would make himself what he called a hot toddy. Yep. Which is um, some sort of booze, I think brandy. Usually brandy or whiskey, yep. And then lemon juice and honey, I think. Yep. And he would make that, and he'd make a you know a decent sized glass of it, like a like a water glass of it. Yep. He would drink that. He'd go to bed. He'd wake up the next day, and he was fine. Mm-hmm. You know. No, um, but if you think about it, okay, you have the alcohol. Alcohol is an astringent, and it's a sedative. So you get a good night's sleep. Rest, of course, as everybody knows, is one of the greatest healing. Bombs. Oh yeah, absolutely. Lemon juice, vitamin C, boosts the immune system. Honey naturally occurring sugar breaks down more slowly in the bloodstream so you have sustained energy instead of the spike and crash. Okay, fair enough. But, uh, yeah, you know, and I've done that a couple times as an adult, too. I mean, they don't taste that bad. (laughs) And they do. They, They help you at least get a good night's sleep, if nothing else. Right. And then you also have the placebo effect. He probably firmly believed I drink this, I get a good night's sleep, I will feel better in the morning. Poof, he feels better in the morning. Yeah. And and that's another thing that's overlooked so much is the placebo effect. It's it's huge. Especially in children. Yep. Because if you can convince a kid that something's going to do something, okay. Yep. Yeah, with um, Josie, my youngest, the one-year-old, she has discovered what we call badooping, which is when she takes some of the cushions off the, the little throw pillows off the sofa. She piles them up on the floor and then she face plants in them. Okay. And she thinks it is the funniest thing in the world. Sometimes, however, she decides to do a back badoop and she misses and she like slides off the cushions and bang, hits her head on the carpet. We found if we, <gasps> she freaks out and she starts crying. If we badoop and laugh, she giggles and picks herself up and yep. does it all over again. So as long as she thinks it's okay, then it's okay. If she thinks it's bad, then it's bad. Mm-hmm. So, so what else do you have as far as medical advice that's changed over time? Food. Oh, yeah. Yes. And yeah, we, because we, I remember the first time I was by you guys for dinner or something, and the baby, I mean, was a baby, and yep. you guys were giving, them, giving her food, and I'm like, wait. Yes. Now, with my eight-year-old, they said, um, especially before her teeth come in, give her pureed stuff, pureed vegetables, pureed fruits. And we found all these uh, squeezable packages of fruit and vegetable mixtures, and we gave her those. She loved them. So basically baby food in 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 a tube. Right. Problem was, she developed an affinity for the smooth feel of the puree. And now she has texture issues. Um, she can do noodles and she can do rice. She'll eat applesauce, but she won't eat apples. Okay. She won't eat pineapple or orange or any of that. She'll drink fruit juice. She'll eat the puree. She she can't deal with the fiber, the fibrousness of actual fruit or vegetable. Okay. Okay. To the point where she'll try to eat it. And again, a little bit of this is the placebo. And she'll vomit. So when we had the Josie, we wanted to make sure that we didn't deal with this this again. So we started looking into it and we found this thing called baby led weaning, which is all the rage nowadays. And it's basically uh, for the first year, of course, you either breastfeed or formula, depending on 
what your situation is. But when they show interest in your food, give it to them. That's not new. Because we did the same thing with my children. Yeah. yeah. Did they have a different name for it, probably? Uh, no, it's just that's how you did it. I yeah. mean, it, 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 was, it was introducing them to new foods that uh, you learned whether they could stomach or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think I think it's I think it's become popular because there was that phase of you can't feed a baby anything but right. pureed food. Yeah, and uh, that's what we so, had with the yeah, eight year old. Exactly. Yeah. So we hit that down cycle of everything has to be baby specific. You, babies can't handle adult food. See, and we were very much in that era where our girls they got you know rice cereal and they got bottles and stuff until they were ten, eleven you know, months, a year old. And then you could get into, you know, like the softer things. Yep. And then, you know, eventually, and I'll tell a quick story here. Eventually my oldest daughter and I get left home. It's, it's dinner time. And before my wife left to go to work, she said, Hey, cut up an apple, feed it to the baby, give her some rice cereal, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, fine. I can do this. Not hard. So I took that apple and I cut it up into the smallest freaking pieces I could that still had form to them, you know, because I'm like, I don't want this kid choking on me. So we're eating our, our, our cereal. We get done with that. And I'm like, you want some apples? And she, you know, she starts, you know how kids do as much as they can fit in their mouth. Mm-hmm. Well, of course you have to control that as a parent, but you know, she's putting it in her mouth and all of a sudden she just looks at me and she's got these big eyes. And then I realize she's not breathing. And I'm like, and, and it's amazing because I had never done Heimlich of any sort before to anybody. But we had taken a class and we learned how to do baby Heimlich. So I flipped the baby over and I gave her a couple sharp, you know, to the back between the shoulder blades. And the apple comes out. I'm like, you know, she's crying and I'm like freaking out. And, and, I'm, and I'm, He was crying. She was freaking out. <laughs> Either way, something like that. There were, there were tears and screams. <laughs> And I, and I had her and I was holding her and she's crying and I'm like, it's okay. And I'm kind of have her up over my head, you know, and I'm, and what they don't tell you about baby Heimlich is that once it starts moving, it that, stays moving. Yeah. Everything. So once she took a deep breath, everything came out and I got some in my mouth and all over my clothes and just grossest thing in the world. Now I'm not a vomit guy to begin with. Like if somebody pukes in front of me, even now I'm kind of like, Hur. but to get it in my mouth. So she threw up on me. I threw up on the side. It was a mess. So I get her undressed and we sit and we take a bath together and we get her all clean and stuff and get me all clean because I'm loaded down in vomit. And I call my wife and I'm like, never again. And I try to explain to her what happened. And she's confused. And she gets home finally and she's like, so what happened with the apple? And I'm trying to tell her and she's like, and she can't figure it out. I'm like, well, it's in the fridge. And because I had taken what was left, put it in a container and put it in the fridge. And she pulls it out and she looks at it and she starts laughing. Now, I didn't think this was a humorous thing at all. She starts laughing and I said, what? She goes, didn't you peel the apple? I'm like, nobody told me I had to peel the apple. So what was happening is these little flaps of peel were getting stuck, stuck on top of each other and she couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the apple itself is small enough and it'll break down. Right. The peel is a lot harder. The peel is where all the fiber is. Exactly. And many of the nutrients. Yeah. yeah. So I was just like... Except for the cyanide. The cyanide's in the, the <laughs> seeds. you got to yeah, eat all the way true. to the core to get that. 
but it was it was it was hilarious. I mean, in retrospect, it's hilarious because I was like, I wouldn't feed her apples for months. It's like, what? You fruit? Yeah, bananas. <laughs> <laughs> my, but, my son loved uh, pureed carrots as a baby. Okay. And he loved them so much; it was the only thing he would eat for a while until he turned orange. When he turned orange, we had to wean him cut, off cut, carrot. Gotta, gotta love that beta carotene <laughs> buildup. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I, so how's I, his eyesight nowadays? Uh, great. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so what else you got besides food? Well, actually, it can, continuing, continuing on, on with food, food okay. and linking food and medicine. So kind of coming full circle with it. Okay. Is allergies. Now, when I was growing up, and then even up until my eight-year-old was growing up, we were told by pediatricians and everything, you can't expose the baby to the most common food allergens because they will develop the allergy. So no fish, no shrimp, you understand that. I do. No peanut butter, uh, things like that. And we're like, okay. And now it turns out my eight-year-old loves fish, loves peanut butter. Uh, I don't think she's had shrimp or any kind of shellfish yet. We're still working on that. But again, that's kind of a texture issue. Right. But then when we were seeing a new pediatrician for the, the one-year-old, um, even before she was born, we, we met with her because she was new to the area. And so we were taking the, the then seven-year-old to her. Mm-hmm. And we said, we're expecting another one. And she said, okay, here's some information. And something you might want to know is the new medical opinion on food allergens. And we're like, oh, this will be interesting. Uh-huh. And so she was the one who told us about baby-led weaning, which I alluded to earlier, and you mentioned has been around forever, but our pediatrician for the older one was like, you can't do this. It's bad. It will kill your baby. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's the last thing you want to hear as a new parent especially. Yeah. You're going to kill your baby if you do this. Okay, I, I, won't, I won't do, do that. <laughs> so, but our new pediatrician was telling us about the baby-led weaning, and said new studies and changes in medical opinion have reversed our position on food allergens. Introduce them to these things early because then while their immune system is developing and everything, they build up a tolerance for it and they're less likely to become allergic to it. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, when did they reprogram the human race? And she she got kind of a, a chuckle out of that because... I'm sure as a doctor, she hears complaints from parents all the time about, won't you people just make up your minds? Right, right. Yep. Now, see, for me, it was just the opposite. My parents, obviously, you know, I grew up in a Catholic household, so it was fish every Friday, especially during Lent. Yep. And... Plus, it's Wisconsin. Well, it's Wisconsin. And so, my parents started feeding us fish real early on. And then I had my first reaction to fish when I was like three years old. And I was unable to eat fish after that, but I could still eat shellfish. I could still eat shrimp and that kind of stuff. Yep. I didn't. I didn't get that allergy till I was in high school. And uh, trust me, it's still there because not so long ago I might have eaten something I shouldn't have and had a reaction. And had a reaction. Although, funny reaction to shellfish allergy. Um, a few years back, I was having a CT with contrast. And the, the dye they use is iodine-based, which mm-hmm. is usually the element in shellfish that produces the reaction. Actually, they've, they've changed that thought process as well. Oh, gee, what a surprise. They believe it's the protein in both fish and shellfish. Okay. That and that's sense. why like people like me who cannot be around fish frying is mm-hmm. because 
the proteins actually become part of the air. Right, because they are broken down out of the oil by the heat of the fryer, and they're uh, volatized right. into the atmosphere. Right. See, Ooh. I always thought it was an iodine. Word. Yes. I, I always I, thought I tell it was. You I was a teacher. <laughs> I always thought it was the iodine as well. Mm-hmm. And I had a CT with contrast at one point, and they had a crash cart. I mean, they yep. they had, a, and I was fine. Yeah. So. So, but anyways, I go in. Um, for this contrast, and it's before I found out I had celiac disease. So whenever I ate fish and got sick, they told me it was the fish, not that it was the gluten. <laughs> the breading. Right. <laughs> so anyways, I, I go in for this test, and they got the IV line in me and everything, and the, the nurse is running through all these things. Have you ever blah, 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 do you ever da, da, da. And she's got the syringe in the IV, and she's halfway through injecting me with the iodine. And she says, do you have any seafood allergies? And I said, yes. And she froze. And she turned white, and she started shaking, which, given that she still had a needle in my arm, was kind of painful. Yeah, I can imagine. But the other nurse who was there had gone back behind the controls to get everything set up, and she heard me say yes to the seafood allergy, and she comes running around. And she's looking between the two of us like she's not sure which one of us is going to collapse first. And then I finished up with, but it's to regular fish, not shellfish, so I'm probably not going to react to that iodine you started injecting me with before you got to that question. (laughs) <laughs> and the, the first nurse is still standing there, and she's still white, and she's still shaking. The other nurse starts laughing, and she finally controls herself enough to go over to the first nurse, take the needle out of her hand so that she can finish injecting me with a contrast and not make my arm balloon up even more with black and blue marks from the jiggling needle. Right. Uh, and then she brings the other nurse over and sits her down, <laughs> and then we proceed with the, the scan. Nice. <laughs> That was an education moment. I'm sure that that nurse has never stuck a needle in an arm without asking the question. Yes, so, yeah, it's so, a teachable yeah, moment. It's a teachable <laughs> moment. Yes. Well, you are a teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, guys. So, so yeah. let's let's talk about being parents. So let's start with you, Scott, because you have the youngest kids. Yep. So you have two daughters. I do. Uh, currently eight years and let's see. This is mid-April, so 14 months. Okay. And in fact. While we were recording this, I got a call from my wife that the baby was having some issues, so I stepped into the other room and FaceTimed with her. Right. So advances in technology have, in some ways, made parenting, or at least parenting at a distance, possible. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily easier or better or effective, but, I mean, five years ago... It's that placebo effect. Right. So, I mean, when my oldest was younger, we didn't have phones with the video capability, but if she were acting up and I was away, I would call and she'd listen to my voice. Um, I'd sing her a song or read her a story over the phone, stuff like that, and it would usually work. Now with the video, she can see me and hear me. So sometimes it works. Tonight it didn't. Okay. So again, you, you never know with kids. Right. And then the next in age is mine. I've got a 16-year-old who is a junior in high school, and I have an 18-year-old who's a freshman in college. Um, we, we didn't even have cell phones when my kids were little. Yep. <laughs> Did you have cordless, or were they still tethered? Well, we had a tethered one, but cordless were around. Uh, the 2.4 gigahertz that would pick up everything else in the neighborhood as well. Uh, and never actually the voice of the person you were talking to. Right, usually. <laughs> but I did get a cell phone relatively early on because of a job I had. I was I was in a 
a retail space where uh, we were forced to have a cell phone. And they said, because we're forcing you to do it, it was like, at the time, it was dirt cheap. I think I paid $30 a month. And that got me like 100 minutes and I think 25 texts and, and something like that. You know, it was just insane. And then the nights and weekends were free. Like, if you had a landline, it was right. really kind of a weird thing. Um, but I never used the damn thing. Because I'm like, you know, it was just, I mean, it was huge. It was like the size of this box. Now, I'm showing them a box that's, what, probably eight inches long and three inches wide. Yeah. Four inches wide. I mean, it was a brick. Right. And the <laughs> signal quality was lousy. And, and you know, it, yeah. It, it was almost like the old two tin cans on a string. Sometimes, yeah. So, what about you, Mike? How old are your kids? Uh, my, my kids range, uh, well, they're, they're all in their 20s. They, they range from 20 to 25, 26. So. Okay. So, now, of the three of us, Scott and I have been married um, to the same woman for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott, or... Uh, Mike. Mike. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, you were married and you had your children with your first wife. Yes. And Paula was married and she had her children with her first husband. Yes. And then you guys got married at a later date and your your situation is quite unique, which is the reason I asked you onto the onto the show. Is you got married and now you have four kids that are all relatively within the same age spectrum. Yes. And what was that transition like? Um, you know, the, one of the, okay, this is going to sound very odd, but one of the best things that came out of my divorce uh, was, was the, you know, the, the parenting uh, classes we had to take. <laughs> because at that time you had to go through a parenting class. You had to, you know, it was kind of odd. Uh, you still did. Actually, it, my still, brother-in-law okay, just got divorced. And uh, uh, it was amazing how it gave me a different perspective on things. Uh, so when Paula and I first met, we actually knew each other for about six months before we actually let our kids know that we were there. Okay. Uh, and that was because that's what they had told us, but you know, it made sense to me. And the reason is, is, uh, you don't want to commit them to knowing somebody that you're not certain is going to be in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, after six months, we made that decision that this was a long-term relationship because we didn't want to say, Hey, the Meet this person. Oh no, that person's not here anymore. Yeah, you didn't want you didn't want either of you to have a succession of Uncle Mike's and Aunt Paula's. Exactly. Yeah. And yep. I and so, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, that developed the ability for us then to introduce ourselves to our children. You know, uh, we did it two at a time. We didn't we didn't just put the whole family together. I was going to ask say, you about that. When did yeah. the kids first meet, and and how did that go? Kind of. Well. Thing? That was, you know, that was probably a, uh, another six months after uh, after uh, that when we had sort of introduced, you know, because uh, her kids, uh, Paula's children, lived with her. She lived in a different city at that time. Uh, and uh, my children, uh, my ex-wife had uh, custody of them. Okay. Um, uh, not custody. Uh, Physical placement. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so that they spent the majority of their time with her. Um, so there was an ability to sort of be a family of four with uh, Paula introducing me to her children and, and vice versa, and never the two met, okay? But then there obviously came a time where we looked at it and said, wait, we, ha we have to make this happen. So we were able to sort of switch our weekends and make it, you know, because at that time um, her children were going to uh, their dads and my children were, you know, 
coming right. to me on separate weekends. Um, so we made it a, a pointed effort to get them together. And to say it went extremely well and everything was perfect would be an utter lie. Uh, <laughs> because there's that instant jealousy, you know, uh, you know, that, oh, wait a minute, you're, you know, you're encroaching upon my mom or you're encroaching upon my dad. This is my mom. This is my dad. And that was something that you have to handle very carefully because it is that, wait a minute, who are you and why are you coming into my life? Uh, now, if I might interrupt yeah. and ask, how old were the kids when this took place? Well, we've been married 11 years now, um, and we dated, um, we met in 2004. We do the math. What is that? That's, That's 14 uh, years ago. Correct. Yeah. So we were dated, you know, two, three years. Um, and... Uh, uh, so you've got six or seven up to maybe beginning of teenage? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the youngest was um, her, her daughter. Uh, well, actually, in both families, the, the, the boy was the oldest and the girl was the youngest. But uh, her oldest boy and my youngest girl are really the same age. Uh, so it, it, it was that moment of okay well Michaela who was the youngest was accepting of it because she's six um Bailey who was you know just kind of coming into those teenage years um wasn't as accepting of it because I was her dad and, and Derek was struggling with um you know how to be like his father but not offend me kind of thing okay uh, and Spencer was not Spencer. He loves everybody. So, yeah, that's true. So that <laughs> was probably true. the easiest uh, uh, thing. So, um, so it was it was difficult. It was difficult in the sense now you have to learn to parent differently to the exact same uh, uh, per, uh, not person, uh, same gender, uh, but in a different way because one's more accepting than the other. Um, how are you going to offend this girl over this girl? Are they going to then hold that against each other? Uh, and it created some very unique situations, some very uh, bad uh, moments came out of it, but they were learning situations mm -hmm. like all life moments are. Um, and we learned over time how to handle each one so that it worked as a family unit. So how nerve wracking was it the first time you met Paula's kids? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was hard. No, I mean I love them to death, but it's like you it's it's like you're in high school and you're being judged. You know, you're standing up in front of uh the prom uh king and queen and they're they're laying down the because you don't know what the you don't know what to expect. How right. are they going to react to it? You know that uh they're going to go back to their uh, other parent and and you know who knows what and and say you're the most awful person in the whole world and uh you know you have to kind of handle things carefully, you know. Uh, you don't want to rule their lives. And that was one of the things, again, in the parenting class that it really kind of made an impact with me is when it came to discipline, uh, Paula had to be the heavy with her children and I had to be the heavy with my children. Because if ever the two reversed themselves, that was all a war. Right. You know, right. Because I don't care who you are. You're not my parent. <laughs> well, and <laughs> not know? only that, and, and I don't think this would happen with Paula, but she could take offense to that too. Like, how dare you? Absolutely. You know. Take care of my kids. Yeah, these, are, these are my children. You can't talk to them. Right. Now, we had an understanding that that was how we knew we meshed as individuals because we had very similar parenting styles and understanding about things. Mm. Um, and over time, you know, I mean, I was a little bit more extreme on certain things and she was a little bit more extreme on certain things. And over time, we melded those together so that, you know, we, we stood on common ground. 
but yeah, it was that. Um, sometimes I would discipline my children one way and she would discipline her children another for the same thing. And it really wasn't the same. You know, right. So. And would the kids notice that too? Oh, absolutely. And be yeah. like, dad, he only got X amount of time without his Xbox or whatever. And you gave me this much more. Yeah. yeah and, and then, and then what developed was then when they moved in with me, now they're with me full time. Uh, well, they are now. And, and <laughs> there's, there's more to the story uh, <laughs> because when they moved in, obviously they, they were still going back to the dad. Uh, when I adopted them, um, their uh, biological father gave up custody so that there was a point in their lives where they no longer were going back to their dads. Mm-hmm. But that still created the situation with my children is they were always with me. Uh, Paula's children were always with me and they weren't. Um, so it created that animosity. And then, but it also created the, how do I discipline my children to say, you can't have television when they were leaving in three hours. Right. You know, because now if I say to Derek and Michaela, you can, you can't watch television for the next day. It, it was a day for my children. It was three hours. They could wait it out until they got home. Right. I can't enforce the rules in my ex-wife's house. So, right. Um, so uh, you learn to be smart. Uh, first of all, when you ground children, don't make it so you're grounding yourself. Because if you say to the child, if you do this, you're grounded for three days. Because now you're grounded for three days. Yeah, because you got to be you know? bare to make sure they're <laughs> exactly. not, they're not so. sneaking off or doing whatever. <laughs> so uh, you, you do have to learn what works uh, and what's what's tolerable. And that's not even a blended so, family thing. No. I'll tell you, <laughs> Nikki and I have done that to ourselves on so many occasions. If you do that or because you did this, we're not doing this. Even though you say you're not doing this, it's really we're not doing this. Well, and the other end of that is, um, okay, if you do this, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to enforce this rule. So they do it. And now you don't want to enforce the rule. Okay, now it's this. If you do this, I'm going to enforce yeah, this Yeah, but if rule. you do that, so. if, you, if you give in... Yeah. Then they know when to push you and when not to push you. And that's you're changing yeah, the boundaries. Exactly changing the boundaries. So. so what about you, Scott? So you and Tina have been married throughout both children. Yep. Is there a big difference in parenting style between the two of you? Or was there? Was there a gap that you had to overcome? There definitely was, and I don't know that we've overcome it. Okay. Now, um, I, Tina and I have been together... For 22 years. Okay. We've been married. This uh, September will be our 15th anniversary. So we, we waited a while before we got married. And then after we got married, we waited a while before we had um, kids. Mm-hmm. And then we waited a while before we had another kid. Right. So, yeah. Um, we, we're kind of the, the the slow and patient kind when it comes to well, certain I things. Well, I figure you did it in a perfect way because your youngest will be graduating high school when you retire. So by the time she's out of college, she can take care of you. Exactly. Yeah, good luck with so, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it works out because when my youngest graduates from high school, I teach at the high school she'll probably attend. So I can be there at her graduation, and then her graduation party can also be my retirement party. So He I mean, thought we'll this have, out. He thought we'll this have, out. We'll have everybody together. The, the only thing that's kind of a bummer is my by the time my youngest is starting kindergarten, 
my oldest will be starting seventh grade, which means she will have just left the elementary school. So I can't have the two of them ride the bus together. Ah. Because the schools start at different times. So, so what is that one thing that you and Tina just don't mesh on? What, I mean... Um... I'd say probably the, the biggest thing is discipline. Um, I came from a very strictly disciplined background, uh, very similar to yours, a very Catholic yep. disciplined background. And I, and I still catch myself with this, but I tend to be harsher than Tina is. Okay. The other thing that she rags on me fairly constantly about is when the child injures themselves in a, a minor fashion. I mean, you get a, a serious injury. Um, I was a first responder. The, all the public safety and parenting instinct kicks in. Okay, let's stop the bleeding before right. you pass out, stuff like that. But little things like when you tell them, don't put your fingers in between the door and the frame and then close the door and they do it anyways. And then they're crying because their hand hurts. My first instinct is to say, I told you, you would hurt your hand. My response was always, and what did we learn? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Her first response, if she's the one initially responding is pick them up, give them a hug, go get the ice pack. If we're both there, my first response is pretty much the same. Her first response is to yell at me for my first response. And then she picks the kid up and goes and gets the ice pack. <laughs> now, did you grow up in a family where corporal punishment was used? Yes. So did I. And my wife grew up in a household where corporal punishment was never used. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about beating my children here. Put a spank on the bottom when they did something that was dangerous. I usually reserved it for when it was something that was dangerous. Or when they were just being really little snots. Yeah, and it was never, you know, it was just a, it was just a soft tap on the bottom kind of mm -hmm. thing, and the girls would just flip out about it. They would just, you know, mm -hmm. it's like I I was destroying them, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But we fought about that for a long time, and we eventually got to the point where if it was something that was truly dangerous then it was allowed. But just because they were annoying me too much, <laughs> you know, I wasn't allowed to give them a, a smack. Well, I don't know. If they push you far enough, that's kind of dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it would be like one day I caught Emma with a butter knife headed towards a light socket kind of thing, you know? I, well, that's that moment of, okay, do we allow them to learn by doing well, not there. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where's the line? Right. You know? right. So. You know, and Molly was another one. Her big thing was we've always had electric stoves. Okay. So it gets red. Mm -hmm. She wants to know what the red is. And you're like, no, it's going to burn you. you. You know, hot. No. And, you know, smack her on the fingers or smack her on the bottom. And it's like you can't let her go right. grab a hold of it because yeah. it, it just – but that was one place where Nikki and I really butted heads was I didn't see, and I still don't see anything wrong with using a, a, a spanking to correct an issue, you know, and, and Nikki was always like, no, no, no. Now 
your kids are older than mine. Mm-hmm. Did did you use spanking? I did with my children. Okay. Um, it, now we get into the realm of with other parents involved. Right. Uh, what what's the what's the repercussion of you can't touch my child? Uh, so I learned over time that um, spanking while Banking, while it does have its advantages as far as discipline, can be handled in a different manner. And not, in my world, not one was more efficient than the other. Okay. They had the same efficiency. Uh, you know, so was the that phrase, wait till like, your father or mother gets home, used a lot? Uh, no, not in my house. Uh, because it, with my first wife, we were self-employed, so we were home most of the time. Okay. Um, with... Uh, with my current wife, um, we both work a lot, uh, but one of us was always home with the children. And that's where we, we agreed upon we have to be the same level of parents. It's not wait till your father gets home, which puts the father over the mother. Right. Uh, it's no, we both have this. Right. Because you would work so. late. And, and with your job at that time, if I remember correctly, you would work some nights really quite late at yeah. the theater. You know, and it would be wait till your father gets home, or tomorrow, or the next day when you finally see him. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> so, and and that's one of those things too that you do have to be careful of, of uh, putting the fear of God into the children of one parent over the other, because then they know I can push this parent button on this. Because by the time this parent gets home, they're going to have forgotten about it, mm-hmm. you know, or they're going to be so tired, they're not going to want to discipline me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you have to be careful of that. And you never want, in my mind, and I'm not a clinical psychologist or anything like that. In no, you're my clinical, mind, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it does create that situation of, of um, they view one parent as uh, superior to the other in, in regards to disciplinary. And it almost sets one up to be the snitch, yeah. and the other is the enforcer. Absolutely, yeah. 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 All right. So, what is for you, Scott? This is this will be kind of maybe a little bit harder for you to answer, but what is that moment of being a parent? This far as being a parent, that is like that that pinnacle of being a parent. Like, what is that one thing that you're like? I am so glad I'm a parent because my child did this or or, you know, because my child achieved this. That, you're right. That is kind of tough. I mean... I mean, your daughter's only eight. Right. And and you you have those moments that melt your heart. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it's even so much about what the child achieves. But, like, for example, with the one-year-old. Um, I remember one time, I, I think she was like... 10 or 11 months old so it's actually been fairly recent um she was crying in the middle of the night i got up to go in to take care of her and i i turned on the light and she'd been crying she rolled over in the crib and she saw me and she sat up and put her arms up in the air and went dada okay and stopped crying and it's like okay this is why i'm a a parent this this is why i had kids Mm mm-hmm so with my older daughter, I mean, she's amazing. Uh, she had her spring concert today that unfortunately I couldn't go to, but my wife was able to go to. So she sent me a couple of texts and pictures from it. And uh, my daughter was uh, chosen to be one of the narrators. Okay. 
and my wife mentioned that she was about the only one that everybody could understand what she was saying because she knew how to use the microphone and enunciate. And um, in previous years, I, I actually have a bit of a theater background as well. Up until my youngest daughter was born, I was the um, auditorium director for my high school. Mm -hmm. And so when I'd be in setting up for concerts or plays or guest speakers or whatever, I'd sometimes bring my older daughter in and I'd hand her the microphone and have her walk around throughout the entire auditorium to do a sound check. Because when I work with the high school kids, I tell them to talk into the microphone and they go, okay. Or, and then they stop talking. <laughs> or they, they hold it down around their belly button and look up at the ceiling. But with Is there my a problem daughter, there? With, with my daughter, she holds the microphone right up to her mouth. She has it at the right angle and she walks around and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. And talks. Which is I can wonderful back you up on that. when you're trying to set levels. And I could yell out to her, move the microphone a little, or uh, slow down and speak a little more clearly. I can't make out what you're saying. And she's wonderful at following directions when you put her on stage and give her a microphone. <laughs> Fair enough. What about you, Mike? What about me? What, what, is, there, is there a moment in your time as being a dad that you're like, this is it. This is why this is. Yeah, all of them. Uh, you know, and, 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 and I think you alluded to this, Scott, is we have to be careful of what we set our children up for. Mm -hmm. Because we tend to want to set them up for failure. We want them to be that success. And you mentioned earlier that you look forward to your daughter's high school graduation because it will coincide with. However, what if she decides as a sophomore she doesn't want to go to school anymore? Tough. Yeah, exactly. So we kind of set ourselves up and we set our children up for those moments of, of you know, where where are we proud of them and when are we disappointed and how do we express that? So uh, we, we as parents have to be able to express to them no matter where you are, what you do, uh, as long as it's not criminal, um, we will be proud of you. You know, we will support you all the way. Um and and and, re and this is just real recently with the snowstorm, uh, snowmageddon 2018. Uh, <laughs> my my 20 year old daughter loves to snowblow. Okay, so uh, and she still lives with us for the next few months. Um, and uh, she went out and she snowblowed our driveway and our our front sidewalk. And then she noticed that the family across the street who uh, we had seen the day before, the husband had come out and started shoveling, but he stopped. Well, she noticed that their sidewalk and driveway were still undone. So she walked across the street and she snowblowed their sidewalk. And it turns out that he was really sick. He, that's why he stopped shoveling. So it's that moment of you made a decision to help out somebody who needed help uh, without being asked to do it, without being told to do it. And it turns out that there was a greater reason why it needed to be done. So that was that moment of, yep, we did something right. You know, mm -hmm. whether it was intentional or not, uh, something was passed along, you know. Um, and it's that sometimes you can try and try and try and uh, verbally try to beat into a child. This is the way you have to do things. And you think, oh, they're not getting it. And all of a sudden, bam, it happens. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, so. I mean, it, it's kind of... Our philosophy as parents, um, which is maybe a cop-out, but our philosophy was we didn't really care what the girls did. We wanted to raise two girls that were good people. Well, you then know? it's a good thing you had daughters instead of sons. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I was speaking because I had daughters. I okay. was speaking that way. But, you know what I mean? We just wanted to raise two conscientious women that, you know, could fend for themselves. And I think we've done that. Um, my oldest daughter went off to college and we said, you know, go to college. Yes, take it seriously, but have some fun while you're there, you know. Get out, meet people, that kind of stuff. And she's done all that. And her first semester, she came home with straight A's. What more can I ask for? <laughs> okay, cheaper college tuition, but other than that, what more can I ask for? You know, and and my youngest daughter, who has struggles of her own, you know, she keeps such a positive outlook on everything, even though she's got, you know, physical um, maladies that restrict what she does from time to time. And it's, it's nothing major. I mean, she's not she's not dying on us or anything, but, you know, it's it's a challenge. And uh, for her to keep that positive outlook all the time, it's it's kind of amazing for Nikki and I to look at her and see, you know, how can she be smiling at this point, you know? When we sit down and we bang our heads together trying to figure out why modern medicine can't figure out her issues, you know? So for me, it's just, it's that fact that I can look at my girls and I can say, yeah, we, we did that. We raised these girls. We did that. We raised them to be smart, independent, strong-willed women. There is a bad downside to that, though. If you teach them to be strong, independently-willed women, you want them to do that with the rest of the world, not with you. Unfortunately, you can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. They do not agree with the fact that we should be exempt from this. Well, and 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 uh, and this is a generational thing because I, you know, we speak in the same terms. And when I say that, there's an interesting study in how generations think differently than each other, mm-hmm. and the way they sort of, uh, and a lot of that has to do with sexism and racism and, and that sort of thing. But, All kinds of isms. So yeah, mm-hmm. but you want to raise your child male or female, to be a self-sufficient, uh, able-bodied person, you know, because to say I want to raise my child to be a self-sufficient, able-bodied woman, what's the difference, you know? We just want them to be happy. We want them to be proud of themselves, to be successful in their terms, and to uh, be able to support everybody else in what they do. And that's what being a society is about, because society as a whole, I'm going on a rant here, as society <laughs> as a whole, we set each other up for failure, you know, uh, because uh, in society terms, I'm a failure, okay? Um, I don't make a lot of money. I don't have an education. Uh, I work hours that are exceed, extremely insane for very little benefit, but I'm a success because I have four children I'm very proud of. I have a wife that is unmatched by anybody else. And I know that no matter what I do, God has my back and everything's going to be okay. So be careful how you put things to your children. Put it in the terms that makes them understand that it'll be okay. Set your goals and we will help you obtain them. Because when you set the goals for them, you're almost setting them up for failure. You, so there, there's that difference between um, knowing what they want and knowing what you want. So that's a fine line we all have to walk as parents. 
We all want to be on that same goal. We, as parents, we want their goals to match our goals, but it's not always true. So, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't know, guys. Got anything else? I, I guess the last question I'm going to ask here, and we'll wrap this thing up because we went a little longer than I thought we would. Well, but there's three of us talking. Yeah, about I was going to say that because I'm here. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and all three of us. I mean, we all hate talking, but yeah. we'll do it <laughs> anyway. So. Would you change it? Would you change being a dad for anything? No. Mike? No, and even with even with my blended family history, because it's that, you know, my wife asked me that question. If we were to able to go back in time, and my answer to that always is no, because where I'm at and where my children at is is where it needs to be. The experiences we've had have determined who we are. Absolutely. And and I wouldn't change it for anything. I mean, my wife, my kids, the whole thing. I mean, my goal coming out of high school was I was going to be an actor. I was going to go to Minneapolis. I was going to become an actor. Mike, you know I love acting, and I've done it for a lot of years. But I do it on a much smaller scale than I ever wanted to. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I wouldn't change that for anything. Nikki asked me that just maybe two months ago. She said, you know... If we went back, if we redid it, she said, would you want to follow that dream or be where you're at? And I'm like, I definitely want to be right where I'm at. Because you followed your dream. Even though I didn't know yeah. it was my dream. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. so all right, with that, uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, you can reach out to us in a couple different ways. You can send us an email at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com. Um, you can find us on Facebook at want to hear something interesting. Uh, you can also send us an email at eclecticmediaproject.com. Now, quick update on that. We have a logo. We do. Woo! Yep. So we have a logo now. Um, we have somebody that is going to build our website. Yes. Um, let's see what else we have going on. We are going to incorporate as an LLC. Yes. Uh, we figured that's probably the smart way to do it, and we're trying to do this the smart way. So, As opposed to everything else in our lives. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I've been through the whole business thing before, and it just makes more sense to do that. If we never make a dime, it doesn't matter. Right. If we do, however, we know how to deal with it. Yep. So, so um, Dice and gaming books. That's what I do with my money most that's of the time. I, I mean, look around you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But anyway, all right, with that, uh, thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you in June. Yeah. Wow. The year is flying. Doesn't feel like it because I'm still shoveling. Yes. But at least it is going by. As Mike so so nice, succinctly put it, Snowmageddon 18, yep. it is the largest single snowfall that I remember in my lifetime. It, it's the largest single snowfall in April um, by almost 10 inches. Well, yes, I so. know that. But, I mean, in my lifetime, I don't think I ever remember 27 inches at one time. Well, I'm older than you are. <laughs> yeah. And Mike me, was around for the last ice age. <laughs> and me growing up in Boston, I was there for the blizzard of 78. Yeah, blizzard yeah. of 76, yeah. Yeah. Blizzard, there was a blizzard the year I was born? Yep. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you next month.
You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.